Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Tonight Show. The Taoiseach accepts the government needs to do a better job at communicating on the asylum issue. But after the fire at a County Galway hotel earmarked as asylum accommodation, Leo Varadkar also hits out at what he terms the deep misinformation on immigration. I hear absolute myths about us somehow having uh, an open borders policy or um, rolling out the red carpet and welcoming people to come here regularly. That is just not the case. What we have done is they started off and they opened our borders completely and let the place be flooded. So now we're in a situation where we are full to the brim and we're overflowing. And another UN Security Council vote is now due tomorrow amid growing calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. Taoiseach has hit out at what he described as the absolute myths about the country having an open borders policy and rolling out the red carpet to immigrants. Leo Varadkar was responding to the ongoing fallout from a massive fire at a proposed asylum seeker accommodation in County Galway. Earlier, the Justice Minister branded the blaze at the Ross Lake House Hotel in Ross Cahill as arson and criminal damage. This was a peaceful protest. Gardaí were monitoring on the scene uh, throughout the weekend. Uh, what escalated, though, was not a peaceful protest, and we have to separate the two very clearly. This was arson. This was criminal damage. This was extremely disturbing to see this type of escalation uh, from what started as a very peaceful protest. Well, I'm joined in studio by Fianna Fáil TD Eamon O'Keefe, Deirdre Garvey, Secretary General with the Irish Red Cross, Irish Independent Executive Editor Kevin Doyle. And from County Galway tonight by Independent Councillor Thomas Welby. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, I want to come to you first, Thomas, um, because you're on the ground there in Galway. You were at the protests at the weekend. What is the feeling in the community tonight on the attack itself? Is there disquiet about what happened? What's been the local reaction? Yeah, well, clearly the locals are shocked, really, in relation to it. Now, you have to understand that this escalated at a breakneck speed, really. Uh, I mean, it all started, uh, from my perspective, with an email just a few minutes before three o'clock on Friday. I think some of the party um, politicians would have got a call, potentially a call maybe an hour beforehand. Um, but at, just before three o'clock, I got an email in uh, from the department to outline. Uh, it did say that it was a briefing document, um, a seven-page document and a briefing document. Uh, but it went into great detail in relation to who was going to um, lease it, who owned the building, who leased, what, who was leasing it, how many people were going to be there, you know, the numbers of rooms in relation to it. It was fairly detailed in relation to that, and there was a lot of information that would be you would view as national information. Uh, but I mean, the local community 
community were shocked because this was a hotel that an awful lot of people would have used in Morkton mm-hmm. and everything like that. A lot of people, a lot of big venue for, for weddings, local weddings. And um, recently it was sold and a planning permission went in, which was granted, I think, in September this year uh, to bring it back into uh, bring it back from a hotel into a private house and that's where i think a lot of people thought it was going until this uh, bombshell came through okay. but and can i just say people... to you anybody that i have spoken to is clearly hugely upset mm-hmm. in relation to what has happened down here and you know their view is that this wasn't done in their name and they didn't want they didn't want anything like this this is a very very quiet it's a very remote area and these people you know you know they were they were just going about their daily lives when this this landed on top of them. But they did feel, uh, you know, whereas they they didn't. Nobody that I spoke to was in, uh, endorsed this. In fact, you know they they were they came out completely against what actually happened. But there was a lot of um, information in the media particularly from RTE, uh, all, all over Saturday uh, in news, various newscasts that the department were uh, engaging with them, with the people in the communities right. and everything and like that. And you're saying, and you're saying that that, was, that that consultation didn't happen, no, but you did receive a briefing document on Friday afternoon. What sort of consultation yeah. did you expect? Well, can I just say first thing, Claire, I didn't even know I was on a mailing list with the department. Uh, you know, they they reached out to me. They sent the document to me, and I expected when it was a briefing document that this was the start of some discussion. You know, a consultation. They're talking about consultation. They're co- talking about communication, and they're talking about briefing. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't get onto the the department six months ago and say, look, if you're sending out any emails, you might put my name down on it. That's not what happened. Mm-hmm. I, I I got this as a local rep, and I expected that to be some back and over. But effectively, it was a fait And do you think it was expected? Them, Sorry, Thomas. Did you think it was expected when you got that briefing document that then you would tell people about what was happening? That it was for you then to explain to, yeah. to, to yeah. people on the and ground what you was have happening. You understand, um, Claire, I'm not a decision maker in this process in any shape or form. Um, we don't, you know, councillors have no in, in, input into this. But what, what we were put into this, we were in, put into the position of being the uh, people that imparted the information to our local community. And, you know, I it, that doesn't rest easy with me and on the basis of it would rest easy with me if I had a situation that we were get, going to get into discussions over a couple of, you know, maybe days or a week or something like that uh, to explain to the people what's going on. But, uh, you know, to me, it was just this is it. Take it or leave it. And, you know, uh, uh, but I, I, and I do you believe, believe that consultation, that, RTs, that, 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 um, discussion, that, that discussions would have made a difference would have, you know, I honestly changed know, opinions Claire, but, or resulted um, in no when protests. I, when I did hear the um, morning errands this morning, when I heard of all the various locations that had issues, I said to myself, well, how many more how many more times do you have to do this? I mean, the the chief whip came out this morning and said they need to get the communication right. Sean, I, was, I watched Sean Fleming last week on a programme saying they needed to get the communication. The, the Taoiseach has said it. Everybody's talking about improving the communications. Even the document uh, on the bottom of page two of the document, the seven-page document, it starts, it's on about communications. But there's no communication. Would communication, and do you believe, the, Thomas, have prevented a fire? Sorry? Would communication I, just, have prevented a, a fire? There's a bit of a drop down there sometimes. Can I just, can you repeat yourself? I'm there, wondering, do you believe that would communication at local level have prevented a fire, have prevented an arson attack? 
What yeah, you potentially it could because, uh, you know, people might have uh, been a, a bit more ease. But I just have to say, realistically, it, it, you know, it is not a location that, that should have been selected in relation to it. It's very isolated and uh, very hard to get to, you know, no footpaths, no lights, extremely dangerous to walk on the road in from the main road. And, you know, and I, I fully accept there's a, there's a pressure, this extreme pressure in relation to... But that's where the concern lies. That's uh, where the concern lies as far as uh, at local level is about its inaccessibility and lack, lack of lights and lack of amenities in the vicinity. Yeah, well, like, I mean, you know, it does say that it's going to be uh, 70 um, May, I think it was male people. I mean, were they school going age? I don't know. I mean, these are the sort of things. We have serious pressure. I mean, the school is overcrowded in relation to here and in, uh, we have serious problems with um, bus services. I, I I didn't even talk to the local doctor because I know well he is he is um extremely full. I mean we have had integration here. Our nursing home closed in Octorard and it's now it is housing Ukrainians. Our youth hostel is closed and there's Ukrainians and there's very good integration there. But it has put pressure on the services All immensely. Right. Okay, let's bring our panel in at this point. Um and I want to come to you, Eamon O'Queeve, just firstly on this um, criticism about a lack of consultation and the acceptance from the Taoiseach that they ne you need to do something about it. Well, what they said is a lack of communications. Uh, reality is that there was one flaw I would have had with what happened, and that is that it happened on a Friday. And when it happened previously in Galway, it happened on a weekday. So the following morning, we were able to go on the radio and outline the position. That didn't happen this time, which I think was unfortunate. A small little error of doing it on a Friday rather than doing it on the Thursday for the Friday morning. Right, so you just believe it's a matter of a couple of days uh, and that well, the briefing document I, is, I, is sort know, of adequate somebody, communication. If somebody can show me with a month or two months notice that some of these problems wouldn't arise, I think we'd have to look at it. On the other hand, there is a challenge here because there are a few hundred people sleeping rough because this country cannot put a roof over their head tonight. So there is an emergency and accommodation is hard to come by. So there's that point. Now, the other thing is when other properties were put into use, there was no big long consultation. So there are a lot of Ukrainians, particularly in Connemara, uh, they're in Mamcross, they're in Clumbar, right beside where I live myself. Uh, they have, you know, obviously put pressure on services, although some of the schools are really happy to get the children. Uh, but people have accepted that that's the world we live but in. What does, but in what Galway... Does, what does communication it, look like, I mean, as far well, as government is concerned? Uh, uh, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear from those who say there's a lack of communication, what communication they want. Um, well, what Thomas is saying, and I'm sure he'll say it again, is more than just um, a seven-page briefing document but, but, on a Friday evening, but, but, a, but, a back, but a bit of back and forth, that this isn't a done deal, but, but more but something uh, that can be discussed. In, in relation to placing uh, people in accommodation, uh, I don't think we can go to the point that we have to, you know, that the state has to get permission from communities who lives in your community. Uh, that would be an impractical proposition, in my view. I'd be interested to hear somebody but is who what, had, is had a contrary argument. But is what is happening now working when well, we're seeing the fallout, like, when we're seeing a suspected well, arson attack? 
um, when we're seeing entire communities protesting? First of all, there's no excuse for the arson attack. And I'm glad that Councillor uh, Welby agrees with that. Absolutely no excuse whatsoever for that. The second thing I'd say to you, a lot of uh, asylum seekers have been placed in Galway in recent times. And it's been more or less the same procedure. And it went very smoothly because people accept in lots of communities that people have to be accommodated. Um, there is no doubt about it. If they had been accommodated there, some kind of minibus service down to the main road. There's a good service on the Clifton to Galway route now, and it's been and you're saying improved. that you're saying that would have happened, and those well, services. Well, these would are the have kind of place. things you work out, you negotiate, um, and you know there were challenges when people came to Mam Cross. If you know where Mam Cross is, because it's totally isolated from any kind of shops and so on. But these problems were overcome, okay. and people have settled down. They've got jobs, and they commute in and out. The thing I would accept is that to walk from the hotel down to the main road is quite a walk and some facility would have had to be made right. available to cover that. Okay. Um, Deirdre, to bring you in on this, those images of the fire um, that we have seen, what, what do you believe is the, the impact of that? Um, they're very visceral. Mm. Um, uh, what message do you believe it sends out? Well, I think the message that we have to acknowledge loud and clear is that for the vast majority of cases, uh, this country, the Irish government and the Irish people have been extremely welcoming of migrants, of immigrants, of Ukrainians, of asylum seekers. We really are the kind of people who understand that there's war, there's terror, there's famine, and we have opened our homes, opened our hearts. 23% of all the Ukrainians in this country are housed in Irish homes, the Irish Red Cross, and our partners in the NGO sector, we've been working with government to make that happen. And it's an extraordinary, generous uh, move by Irish people. And as, as we've just heard the previous speaker allude to, it goes well in the vast majority of cases. Yes, there's a bit of give, a bit of take, a bit of working but, things out. But the, the but growing sentiments that we've seen, and I, I suppose the escalation mm. in the anti-migrant protests mm. and, and communities coming together to object to people um, coming into their community for various reasons. I mean, what do, you, what do you make of that? Do you think there needs to be a change in the government approach here? Well, what I think we need to do is to understand that there are legitimate questions. You know, there are, in this particular instance, I think it was a week's notice that was given. So in one sense, it is better than a sort of an overnight message. There was a seven-page briefing with a lot of information. But pulling back from that, right, there's always things that we can learn from and improve from. And I think that we need to all collectively understand that we're all on the same page here. We all want good services, we all want people to feel safe, and we all want to welcome people who, who need it. And what we have to do is ensure that there's a balance between ensuring that the supports are there for the communities and for the people who need it, but also for the people who are coming from a war-torn country or a famine or a conflict. There's a balance of interests here with the government's legal obligations, the local community, and the people who need help. And is that balance being met? Well, in the vast majority of cases, it is. And in this instance in Galway? Well, clearly something has gone wrong in this particular instance because there's no place at all, and I think we need to be really clear about this, there is no place in the civilised world for that kind of arson, and certainly there's no place in our response to migration. You asked what the impact of this is having. Can you imagine being migrants who are already settled in that community for 15, 20 years, well settled, and the impact that this has on them yeah. who are well and integrated? We have heard um, some reaction from, from people today, um, certainly who have been 
who've been shocked by what's happened. Uh, Kevin, to come to you on this, uh, politically, how do you think the government are going to manage this from here? This isn't the first uh, suspected arson attack we've seen. It's not the first set of protests we've seen, especially in rural areas, about um, you know asylum seekers being, being housed in accommodation that you know, locals have uh, concerns about. So no, what happens now? It's a real problem for the government now because it's Galway this week, but we've seen Donegal, we've seen Wexford, we've seen Cork, we've seen other parts, Leitrim, other parts of the country where similar situations mm. have arisen. And for a long time, I think senior politicians and indeed the media to some extent have held back maybe from getting too deep into this conversation, partly because there was this fear of giving oxygen to those who promote the idea that Ireland is, is, is full. And I think the genie is out of the bottle now. Um, so senior ministers and indeed opposition leaders now have to try and walk a tightrope to manage the messaging around this. So up to now, there's a consensus, but there's a big problem coming when you look at what's happened with Fianna Fáil today, where two local councillors um, are now defying Micheál Martin in their attitude and in their public statements on this. And that's a big problem for him. And I think we can have a little more of a listen to that now. Earlier, another uh, local councillor in County Galway, that's Noel Thomas of Fianna Fáil, he outlined his position to Virgin Media News. Take a look. The solution that they have come up with so far is not working. We've, we're in a situation in this country at the moment where we unfortunately cannot help the people that need the help. Because what we have done is they started off and they opened our borders completely and let the place be flooded. So now we're in a situation where we are full to the brim and we're overflowing. Full to the brim, overflowing, and the borders are open. Um, I mean, what, what do you make of that? This is the grassroots voice of Fianna Fáil, Eamon. Well, the council's entitled to his view. No okay, but, it, but, it, it, but I wouldn't would agree with that view. And I, uh, would I'm you say it's at, at odds and that there is a communication problem, um, you know, not just to local communities, but within Fianna Fáil itself, no, within it, government it, parties? There's differences of opinion. It would be very unusual in a party well, if they well, weren't. I, I don't, but, I'm but, asking but, you but what I, you make of that language and when it's coming from I, a Fianna Fáil councillor. I am very surprised at that language. Uh, the reality is that we have done a tremendous job in accommodating a huge number of people in the last year. The biggest number obviously came from Ukraine. And if I look around Connemara, they are located all over the place. Biddle, Carrow, Clifton... Uh, and you're talking about Cross. you're talking about and in you're talking about the big welcome. But when you have Fianna Fáil councillors who are saying, and I think Noel Thomas said earlier on, the inn is full, um, and uh, you know he he refers to it being you know the blame being at the lap of the government for what's happened in Galway. But what but, what do you say to that? And what does the party do with that? Well, the party have made a decision that the rules and procedure committee of the party will examine that issue, and I don't want to preempt what they will do, but the party obviously takes a serious view of that and a very serious view. But the reality of the inn being full is that the inn wasn't full. In fact, the hotel was empty and was available. And accommodation of that sort is in short supply. Uh, and as I've said, time and again, people have been accommodated in the area in, in Galway City and around the constituency. Well, we heard from and there Noel has Thomas, been no problem. And we may hear from others and other Fianna Fáil councillors as well. I say he's not the, the only one, Seamus Walsh as well, that they will say they are reflecting what the community is saying to them, what members of the community are saying to them. Well, different people have different views within the community. And as I've said, if I look at my community and I'm not far away, remember, I live in the heart of Connemara. Uh, we have spent the last three years voluntarily 
inviting Syrians into our community. We initially sought off the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. We sought Afghanistanis. We, they weren't available because of reasons that the Red Cross uh, re- realised. And they offered Syrian families. We've already accommodated one. And when the second accommodation is available, we'll accommodate a second. So there are plenty of welcoming people in the community. Uh, and as I said, there are a lot of right. Ukrainians in Connemara. They are all refugees from war mm. and they're perfectly settled and they got a great welcome. And the communities went out of their way. Mm. And I wouldn't like to give the impression that the people of Connemara, who are the finest but people does it, I does know... But does it worry you? I mean, if, if you have Fianna Fáil councillors and you're saying they're not reflective of maybe well, all the councillors on the ground and they're not reflective, certainly, of all, all members of the community on the ground either, but, you know, they're saying that nationally, they're saying that on the airwaves, and now you're saying that Fianna Fáil is going to look at, at, at how um, they are going to, 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 to manage that and to review what they're saying. I mean, f- f- what's the party going to do? Well, how discipline works in Fianna Fáil is there's a rules and procedures committee that look into events like this. So I'm going to leave it to them to make their inquiry into the matter and make whatever decisions. It would then be brought to the Orskhorda. Uh, Kevin, it, it is, uh, it's a political challenge, isn't it, for government even internally within their own parties and within opposition parties as well, um, as well as the message to the public, how they convey a message or manage mm. um, the refugee situation within their own parties. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, sometimes cliches are cliches because they're true and all politics is local. And the problem now that faces not just Micheál Martin, but Leo Varadkar, Mary Lou MacDonald as well, is that there are local elections coming up in six months' time and councillors are going to be quite vocal about issues that they think will get them elected. If we went back 12 months, um, certainly two years before the war in Ukraine, immigration was not a topic of any great consequence to local politicians, suddenly it is. And they are going to say what they think. In some cases, some will stand by, I suppose, the party line. But in a lot of cases, they will defy their party leaders now. And that is going to be a problem as we head into the elections for the national politicians to then try and reassure the public that they have this situation under control. And I think, as Eamon said, there's 200 people in tents on the street tonight while all this is happening at the same time. And that number will grow as we head into Christmas and the New Year as incidents like this happen, because the reality is that the 70 refugees are not going to Galway this I, week. And I want to ask you, I mean, that's that's one thing. I mean, the fact that fire has happened means from um, the, the, the community's point mm-hmm. of view, there are no yeah. asylum seeking uh, seekers arriving. So where are those 70 people going to go? Um, Deirdre, to ask you about, I suppose, accommodation such as that hotel yeah. and what we hear criticism um, from Thomas and from others that the, you know, there's just the, 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 the roads leading up to it are dark, the amenities aren't there, it's in the middle of nowhere. What do you say to that as someone who's overseeing yeah. uh, so accommodation for people yeah. who are seeking refuge? And, and we're looking at the shared home and the host accommodation. And this is the kind of the government sort of larger style accommodation. I think it, I want to say a, a couple of things. Ireland is not full. Ireland is a very wealthy country. We have not opened our borders. We have a rules-based asylum system and we have international obligations. We have a war that is in a, a world that is increasingly torn with war. Uh, famine uh, and migration. The world and its population is on the move. So what we say is that 
Yes, an emergency solution has been put in place in this country in the last 18 months, and we have been extraordinarily welcome and successful, and that is indisputably true. What we also need to do is to prepare for the future, and if we are, if, as you say, the genie is out of the bottle and we are going to have a conversation, let's those of us in public positions, yeah. whether it be elected locally or nationally, or from civil society leaders like myself and my colleagues in the NGO community, let us show responsibility and let us show fairness in having a conversation about the realities of the modern world and let us have longer-term solutions that are publicly owned in these reception centres that the government has planned and that we can then use these facilities when the crises go for Irish people and build... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Communities around care and compassion and helping people. Um, Thomas, um, if you're still with us, what do you say to um, the comments that have been made by our panel? Can, 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 um, I, just, can I just go back on one thing in relation to sure. communications, okay? And I'm just going to, you know, the reporter for the National Broadcaster RT was on the ground and, and he stated on for, uh, Saturday, the Department of Integration briefed locals yesterday that a group of international protection applicants were to arrive next week, but has assured it intends to work closely with the local community to facilitate and manage the arrivals. You know, uh, now Eamon um, said there earlier on, he's asking, you know, what would, what would communication be like? Sean Fleming said they need to improve their communication, as did the Chief Whip, as did the, the Taoiseach. The department are saying they want they need to improve their communications. Now, I think you have to be honest with the people here. You either are going to put in a communications and a consultation situ situation that's either genuine and will and and will work, and it mightn't work. It it might you might get the wrong answer in relation to it. But you either do it, and or you don't. But you can't you can't have it have you can't have a halfway house here. You can't be telling either RTE got it wrong on Saturday, or else I'm saying here that the department. Okay, sent well we a press don't we don't know what information RTE got. Just just to be clear, that you know, you know they, we don't know what information RTE got, and did they get that from the Department of Integration I, I, or I, where I, they got I, it from? I, it so just to clarify, I'll be honest with you, the the local community fed felt very let down. Right. They even felt that the national broadcaster was against them in relation to it. Can I just, there's one other points I want to make, uh, you know, and like Eamon was on about, you know, that we could get a minibus. We have a school run in, in, in this area that hasn't had a driver since the 18th of October because there's no drivers in the in the area. Uh, I mean, we, we just, the, the school run was 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 stopped because there's no driver. They had to retender to try and get a, a new service provider. Nobody came forward to provide that service. So, I mean, 
there is an awful lot of things okay. that are I'd like to just put to... that back to uh, Eamon O'Keeve. Uh, what do you say to what Thomas has said about, uh, I suppose, his response to this conversation and about the, the communication and then the practicalities of having people yeah, in the area? But communications are important, very, very important, obviously. Do they but need to be improved? What Thomas seems to be saying is there should be consultation and the community have a veto over what happens. Now, if you extend if you extend that across the country, are we saying that every uh, every community would have to be given months' notice? And if they said we don't want them, and how would you determine that that they'd be left on the streets, sleeping rough? I mean, is that what we're suggesting for this country? And as I said, in the main, and I think we have to be honest here, in the main, we have accommodated I think ninety thousand people in okay. the last year, Just and in the main. Every community has accepted right. this is the reality of the world we live in. It has become very nasty, very war-torn. There's huge poverty in the world, and this is the effect. And one thing, it should actually strengthen our resolve to do more to try prevent war um, and to do prevent hunger and poverty right. in other parts of the world. Okay, there we will have to leave that for now. Uh, my thanks to Eamon O'Keeve and to Thomas Welby, who joined us from Galway tonight. Next, the growing international pressure for a ceasefire in Gaza. Do stay with us. The UN Security Council is now expected to vote on a new resolution tomorrow calling for a truce in fighting to allow aid into Gaza. Here at home, senior members of the World Health Organization met with the Taoiseach in Dublin today to highlight the health emergency on the ground there. In our fractured world, health is one of the few areas in which nations from across the geopolitical spectrum can come together to find common ground. Deirdre Garvey from Irish Red Cross and Irish Independent Executive Editor Kevin Doyle are still here with me. We're also now joined by Fianna Fáil MEP Barry Andrews, who's just back from a weekend visit to the Rafa crossing in Gaza. Thank you for joining us in the programme. You got back last night. Um, what was your sense for, at the border, where we know there will be great humanitarian demands on, on people just on, on the Gaza side of things? What did you see at the border um, in terms of movement of aid into the region? Uh, yeah, we, well, there was hundreds and hundreds of trucks lined up and parked by the side of the road, going back kilometres and kilometres from the Rafa crossing. We were there for about an hour in the middle of the afternoon, and we saw a very small number of people walking out the gate. Uh, we saw one minivan bringing a small group of people out, and we saw one truck coming out that had been unloaded, and we saw one truck going in. So that was in an hour um, and bear in mind, there's 2.3 million people on the other side of that gate uh, suffering uh, terrible, uh, suffering terribly from the lack of supplies of the basic essentials of life. So we were able to ascertain that uh, these delays and these obstacles to the delivery of aid uh, are caused by a, a, a wide range of things. But mostly the Israeli authorities have a, a dual use list which they haven't shared with humanitarian organizations mm. or the UN. And this dual use list is a list of items which they think are capable of military use. And they include things like solar panels and 
um, you know, incubators, batteries, um, batteries, tent poles, bizarrely and absurdly. And what happens then? Items go to Karam Shalom uh, on the Israeli-Gaza border. They're checked there. And if there's anything that is rejected by the Israeli authorities, the truck has to go all the way back to Al Arish, where it had originally been loaded. It has to be completely unloaded again and reloaded. And they also don't allow trucks to go through the border into Gaza. They have to, even if they do get to Rafah and they get the authority to go there, they then have to be offloaded on the other side and then moved into another truck to get to distribution so centres within Gaza. When we hear from Israel that, you know, Rafah's on the Egyptian side and, you know, we, you know, humanitarian aid is getting through a slightly kind of hands-off approach to the whole aid question, you're saying they're deeply involved at every level as to what exactly gets through oh. and that that delays uh, plenty of aid getting through and the amount that is coming through is far less than will be, I suppose, evident in any peacetime um, in Gaza. Yeah, and there's terrible violence breaking out on the other side as people are fighting to get access to the very small amount of aid that's actually going through. So you're dealing with an entire collapse of order on the other side. Um, the distribution centres have been uh, attacked as you, anybody would. They're trying to feed but their families. At the and... same time, there are huge aid appeals and, and, and you'll obviously know all about that, Deirdre. So what is happening um, the aid that is obviously being donated, that is ready to go. We're in a we're in a war situation. So is that all mounting up at the at the Rafa side? I'm afraid so. And, and um, just stockpiled um, since since the war broke out. Yes, there's enormous uh, amounts of aid that are now stockpiled. Now the only good news I think is it has to be shared is that, as you know, Jake Sullivan was in Israel over the at the end of last week, and he was putting pressure on the Israeli authorities to open Karim Shalom as a crossing, as it originally was a crossing. Uh, at the moment, all it's been used for is checking and verification and the rejection of, of items. Uh, so that has now opened. And apparently on Sunday night, uh, the first uh, consignment of humanitarian aid was able to get into Karim Shalom. So this is a second uh, a crossing into Gaza. And there's also another verification center about 100 kilometers further into Israel called Nitzana. So it is beginning to uh, open up a little bit. Clearly, the Americans are applying a lot of pressure. The politics at home in the United States are changing very quickly. And I think that's really influencing the American pressure that's been applied in the Israeli government. Now, I, I, despite that political mm. pressure, it, what, what Barry is saying is it sounds like just a trickle of aid is still getting through. This has been the complaint from aid agencies and indeed the UN um, for, for such a long time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem that the aid is getting through when people are in dire need right now. WHO describing this health emergency, a dire health emergency yeah. when they're in Dublin today. This is completely unprecedented in terms of the humanitarian need of the humanitarian crisis. Um, our, we are a an international global movement of Red Cross, Red Crescent societies. So our sister organisations in, in Egypt on one side of the border and in the Palestinian Red Crescent on the other side of the border and indeed the International Committee uh, of the Red Cross uh, have been inside Gaza for decades in terms of providing humanitarian care regardless of where the need is. What are they saying now about and what's happening, people? What they're saying is that 90% of the 2.3 million people in that enclave are displaced, right? 80% of the buildings, the homes, the places where they would have lived um, uh, are gone. They are flattened. The people are 
constantly facing bombardment. Uh, the hospitals, seven hospitals out of the 36 hospitals uh, in Gaza are partially operational, but without electricity and without sufficient medical supplies and medicine. So there, there is a catastrophic humanitarian breakdown. And what we really need is a sustained humanitarian access. Above all, that's what we need. The people are starving and people are... That can only happen with a ceasefire, would you agree? Well, that is the language that's being debated, I think, at yeah. the moment. From the Irish, uh, from the, the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, we speak about humanitarian aid, we speak about sustained humanitarian access, we speak about protecting civilian structures and infrastructure, and we speak about absolutely always standing for uh, international humanitarian law uh, and, and finding that need where it is there. So we do need the, the political leaders to do what they need to do to enable that to happen. Uh, and yet, now we have this UN Security Council vote that is supposed to be tonight, it's been pushed to tomorrow. It's going to be a new resolution calling for an urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities. Um, what's likely to happen? Because over the weekend, we have seen a shift from Britain, um, Germany and France talking about moving towards a sustainable ceasefire. Um, you know, where is the US in all of this right now, given all the pressure that is being piled on them. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that the dial has moved, just not enough yet for the UN Security Council to be able to put that vote because if the US vetoes it again, there is no point in doing this. It's, it's like, you know, doing the same trick again and falling on your face every time. So they can't keep going back now until they know they have something that all sides mm. can agree. But it's quite interesting because when, when the war started or after October 7th, the Hamas attack, Ireland was kind of out in a limb uh, in what it was saying at the time in terms of the attitude. I think of both the Irish people and the Irish government reflecting that in terms of saying this had to stop, the Israel response was closer to revenge. The world has kind of come to that view over the last two months. Um, but the US is kind of the last lingering one because Joe Biden said at the very start, effectively, he flew straight to Israel to give a hug to Benjamin Netanyahu um, to say the US stands beside you. There is US um, senior officials in Israel ever since, uh, be various members of Biden's cabinet, very senior military people. Um, so the US have more than a hand in what is happening there. And we're hearing um, from the US, the official line is what we're calling on Hamas, lay down your arms, mm. hand over the hostages and all of this can be over. That, 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 that is their call rather than the call for the full ceasefire. You'd wonder, you know, where if this like really is an intractable situation right now, because it doesn't look like that's something. Well, I think um, they all know that's do. not going to happen. Biden's in a, a tricky position here because he has always stood by Israel, going back to when he was a young senator the whole way up along. Um, but also Biden is very outspoken in terms of what has happened to children and some of the atrocities. He's seen what's happened in Iraq. He regretted some of the things and decisions that he made around votes on that. So he, I think it seems like he's starting to believe that Israel have gone too far, but how he walks that back and keeps his political position on it is hard to match up at the moment. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? As um, Kevin mentioned, Ireland was an outlier um, in many ways, and now there is, a, there is a changing tide given the number of casualties we've seen, the number of children who have died in this conflict, the horrendous humanitarian situation that exists. Um, but, but 
the US is still steadfast in not calling for that ceasefire. Yeah, but I, I think the politics have changed dramatically and the, the, Biden is hemorrhaging support according to polls on the position that he's taking on this conflict. Uh, Democrats are 70% in favor of a cessation of hostilities. I think what we'll see tomorrow potentially is a bit of dancing on the head of a pin. Instead of a cessation of hostilities, they'll talk about a suspension of hostilities. And I think what we've seen in the European Union, we're moving from humanitarian pauses to humanitarian ceasefires, to immediate ceasefires. And this language really matters. But I think Kevin's 100% right. Ireland took a view at the very beginning. Uh, in the European Parliament, I, I, took, I, I said that, you know, the position against a ceasefire will not age well, and it hasn't aged well. And a lot of countries are coming onto this side. So I think Israel understands that, the, the, you know, the tide is out as far as the, their attitude and, and their military campaign is concerned, and it has to come to an end. All right, okay, well, we see what does play out in New York tomorrow at that uh, UN Security Council uh, vote when it takes place. My thanks to Barry and to Deirdre for joining us. Coming up next, the changing face of church going in Ireland as parishioners oversee funerals. Stay with us. Welcome back. Pope Francis has approved blessings for same-sex couples in what's widely seen as a landmark move. A document from the Vatican said priests should decide on a case-by-case -case basis. It said that such blessings wouldn't legitimise what it called irregular situations, but could be a sign that God welcomes all. Kevin Doyle, executive editor of the Irish Independent, is still here with me. I'm also joined by theologian Gina Menzies. Gina, you're welcome along to the programme. Um, I want to talk as well about lay people and how they're becoming more involved in church services. But first on this news from Pope Francis today about the blessing of gay couples. It can happen, but it's not without its terms and conditions. Well, I, I think, to be honest, it is quite a landmark um, decision. Um, not surprising coming from this Pope, who's a very non-judgmental Pope and who really is leading the Catholic Church, uh, I think, in the direction of being a more pastoral church. And this would fit in entirely uh, with that. I mean, he's not saying that um, he's going to, he's, that there's same-sex marriage, but he is talking about a blessing for couples, which, you know, go back quite recently in 2021 was actually prohibited. So within the space of two years, he has done a complete a reversal of that directive that it was prohibited to bless uh, same-sex couples or people who are in relationships that weren't, if you like, the, the standard relationship in the Catholic Church of being in marriage relationship. So I think it is, you know, fa fairly seismic. Um, and I think it is reflects, you know, a pastoral approach to um, church communities and to mm. how the church uh, is involved in the lives of people. Um, Would you I go as far, Gina, really saying the... it's an endorsement? It's an endorsement of, of gay couples. Well, I think I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, in the past, particularly in Ireland, I mean, you, you had situations where scooters, where tractors, where animals were blessed and, and everybody accepted that that was quite legitimate. So, you know, why would people in, in whatever relationship they're in uh, who would seek a blessing, which is really asking God in some respect to be involved in their lives? You know, why would that ever be prohibited? I mean, I, I would never have been able to understand that it was prohibited. But I'm glad that, you know, that, that Francis is reading the signs of the times and, uh, and realises it's and, and, perfectly, and to, yeah. sensibly, pastorally. 
and of to, course to, for people who ask for a blessing that that be granted to them okay and of course um, we have gay marriage here so with this blessing um it can happen in a church can it but it can't involve clothing or gestures that belong in a wedding is that right I think that's what he's trying to say. I mean, it's not to say it couldn't happen in a church, but the suggestion is that it might happen in other places. You know, in reality, for example, the German Catholic Church has been doing these blessings uh, for some time. And I also know priests in the Irish Church who have, have done them and feel a little bit uncomfortable about it because, you know, it was prohibited. And I think now they have the freedom to acknowledge right. that people who seek a blessing in whatever kind of relationship they're in, and if they come sort of, if you like, in good faith, why shouldn't they be blessed, that relationship be blessed? All right, uh, let's move on away from um, marriages and weddings to funerals. Um, we're getting word that lay people officiating at funerals could become pretty standard thing in this country. This is the Catholic Diocese of Clogher introducing its first lay funeral ministers who will be able to you know, do certain elements of the service as well as the right of committal at the graveside. How new is this? Well, I suppose in an Irish context, it is quite new. Um, but for example, the um, the Diocese of Liverpool in 2012, which is, you know, almost 12 years ago, uh, they already introduced that. And, you know, all over Europe, you have uh, lay ministers, uh, if you like, presiding over many activities of the church, albeit not actually the sacramental ones. And I think sometimes we forget that a funeral actually isn't a sacrament. Um, that it's a service in, in memory, really, of somebody who has who has died. And, you know, I think all recent services that I've been at of quite a variety, you know, humanist in the church, not in the church, in crematoriums, etc. Um, you know, a funeral reflects the, the lives, uh, the loves and the beliefs of the, the person who has died. And, you know, their family is commemorating um, that. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that that could be done by a trained lay minister. And of course, I suppose, I, I, I would have thought that was always a legitimate thing to do. I suppose what's driving it now is the fact that there's been a huge decline in the number of men going forward for, for ordination. Yeah. And the lack, so they're reaching the out to a lay community. Manpower. But I also think it indicates that the Catholic Church is moving towards what I might call a, a more collaborative community between the ordained and the non-ordained and that it will be better for everybody in that respect. Yeah, It's interesting, isn't it, um, Kevin, as well? Like, I mean, does the lay person have to be a man? They don't. It can be a man or a woman. So the church is OK as long as you're a regular parishioner and not a priest. Yeah, it's woman funny, on the I mean, it's, it's, Gina talks about the Pope seeing signs of the times and it's a little bit like they're so far behind in modernization that, you know, they're, they're kind of on the old penny farthings with the big wheels while the rest of the world's on e-scooters. Um, and that's the gap that they're coming from. But I mean, it is, it is to be welcome. It's a survival thing, I think, rather than this idea of opening up the church because we know in Clogher, for example, there are, um, 44 priests for 37 parishes and that covers several counties around the border region. So it's a huge geographical area for a small number of priests mm. who presumably, if, if they're anyway average, are largely older men, um, mostly over 60. Uh, I think about half of priests in this country are over 60 at this stage. So the church is facing this crisis and this is one way of dealing with it, I guess. Yeah, uh, Gina, just to come back to you on that, um, are we more likely to see you know, the lay person and the civilian, if you like, um, in the church uh, rather than a woman becoming a priest? 
Well, I think you know one isn't one isn't sort of one one isn't um, one way or one or the other. I mean, I'd always be in favour of women women becoming priests. But for a number of years, uh, what I have felt strongly is that the whole issue of ministry needs to be reconfigured. And I think if you start there, then it will automatically lead to you know women presiding and women becoming priests. Ultimately, I believe that will happen. But I think the whole notion of ministry in the church is something that needs to be explored further. And again, if you look at you know the synod that Pope Francis has initiated, which will come to sort of term next year, I think it, the church, and I, I know what Kevin is saying, is reading the signs of the times, but also is going back to the New Testament. And if you read the, the, the Gospels in the New Testament, you'll see that women are actually everywhere and they're carrying out many different kinds of ministry. So I think the whole notion of ministry needs to be redefined and reconfigured. And I think in time that we will also have, you know, women presiding over many yeah. services and also women be, being ordained for those who, who see that as their calling. It could be, it could indeed be the stepping stone. Um, we're out of time there, I suppose. Shane McGowan funeral showing us that... Well, that changed the funeral, that, that, that all our expectations. That may, have changed, that may have changed everything here. Um, there we'll leave it. My thanks to all the panel tonight, to Kevin, to Gina, to everyone who joined us. Our programme is available as a podcast. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok and from today on Threads. Um, but from all the late team here, good night and do take care.